Alrighty, I'm back with another episode of Systemically Distorted Communication. Today I'm going to be talking about a recap over week one of the Derek Chauvin trial. I'll admit I'm a bit worn out from it. I've lost track of the amount of hours that I've put into it. But I wanted to make sure that I got my own opinion. I wasn't listening to the headlines. And I can say that I'm, I'm really happy that I did it. Because if I had been just following what I was hearing, I would not have half of the information that I have. The information being put out uh, doesn't really properly portray the situation. And uh, like I, I put in a post earlier this week, I have completely changed my mind on where I was standing before I started watching this stuff. So I'm really glad that I took the time to do it. As I've said many times, evidence matters so if you i mean i think too much in society now we get an opinion based on maybe our preconceived notions and then we stick to it and we refuse to change our opinion even when the evidence changes and for whatever reason you know your political ideology I I, i don't know but i find it strange that people don't change their opinion when they're presented with facts and evidence and a lot of these cases where uh the media runs with race and uh, just tends to fall into this category where people don't want to change their minds. It's one side versus the other, and everybody's very stubborn about it. Anyway, I want to get into this. So, over the last few days, I've watched all of the footage. I've watched all the security cameras. I've watched all the police footage. I've watched uh, all the civilian footage. So, I've got I've seen everything from the very beginning to the very end. Um, and some of the things that I noticed is that Floyd, in one moment, he will be up, moving around, dancing about, and the next moment, you know, he's completely still. He is showing the traits of being an individual under the influence of drugs, which one of the, uh, one of the individuals at the trial, uh, the cashier, uh, had pointed out that. Floyd did appear to be under the influence and was having trouble speaking at one point and conveying what he was trying to talk about. So I just noticed that on the camera as well. And, you know, one of the other things that I think was previously that I thought was really important to this case was the fact that uh, long before he's ever on the ground, he was yelling about, he can't breathe, don't kill me, I'm going to die, all these things long before he was on the ground. Uh, as well as some of the testimony that came up was that there was white foam coming out of his mouth and it was alarming to the people nearby, but he had the white foam coming from his mouth long before he was ever on the ground. And if you're listening to the police cams, you can hear the police asking him, what are you on? Because And they also noticed and identified that he had the white foam around his mouth. So those were some, some things that I thought were pretty important previously, but like I said, I'll get into why I've changed my mind. Uh, I, th- I think those things are important as far as his actual death. Um, but there's other reasons why I changed my mind. Uh, one of the things in the video that <clears throat> I heard repeatedly was him yelling, my neck hurts, my arm hurts, my leg hurts, my stomach hurts, everything hurts, is what he was saying. And the foam was around his mouth. They're asking him what he's on. Okay, But he was doing these things. He didn't say all those things hurt before he was on the ground, but he was saying some of those things. So then he's just adding more information while he's on the ground. So real quick, let's let's just do a very quick recap of what happened. So George Floyd goes to this little uh, convenience store on the corner. It's a cup of 
cup, cup food or something like this, cup food. He uses a $20 uh, counterfeit, $20 bill. And then after they realize it's fake, they try to get him to come back inside. He's outside in a SUV-style vehicle. I think they said it was a Mercedes. And he's sitting out there. He refuses to come back in. So they go and say he won't come in. They go back out. He still refuses to come back in. Uh, other people from, that work in the store try to come out and get him to come back in. He will not. So they go back to the manager. They tell the manager. The manager then calls the police. Then... Uh, the police arrive. He argues with them for a long time. He eventually gets handcuffed. He refuses to get into the police car. He says he can't breathe in there, and he's claustrophobic. He's This whole time, he's, he's being a bit erratic. He's uh, showing signs of being under the influence of something. Of course, nobody at this time knows necessarily what that is. As they get him to the car, he's fighting against them. They even offer that. They say, hey, we're going to put the window down for you. We're not going to leave you. They're, they're being relatively nice at this point. So I, there are a few things that they say that people could argue, you know, they're being aggressive. Okay, well, that's fair. Uh, but I, I do think overall the police are being relatively nice at this point. Then uh, at this time, they, they try to get him into the car. They can't. There's three or four of them struggling with him. Uh, the two are trying to push him in the car. One's going around the backside trying to pull him through, and they pull him through, and then he fights his way through that side. And then they all end up fighting on the other side of the vehicle, trying to get him in there. And he's saying, put me on the ground, put me on the ground, put me on the ground. He does not want to go on the, in the vehicle. So they then put him on the ground. And while he's on the ground, then he continues to yell the same stuff he was yelling before about how he doesn't want to die and they're killing him. He can't breathe, which he was saying before. Um, and then he started adding that his stomach hurts and his back hurts, his arms hurt, his everything hurt. So that's basically where we're at. And then, but then we come to the issue of Chauvin putting the knee on the neck. Okay, so one of the first people I want to talk about is uh, Donald Williams. And I'll go ahead and put his image up. Bear with me here. I'm doing a drag and drop. And when I am doing this, it's uh, not the best way to do it. And so it's a little bit messy for me. All right. So <clears throat> here's Donald Williams. He was one of the bystanders when uh, Floyd was on the ground. Now, he missed the first part of it. He didn't see any of the struggle, so he came into the situation late. So just bear that in mind. One of the reasons they brought him up, because not only was he a witness to this situation, but he also is a, He was kind of treated like a martial arts expert, which I had some disputes with. Um, and I, I'll talk about him. I will say that his credibility is pretty low for me because of some of the stuff he says, and this is an area that I have knowledge in, and some of the things he said I just I just entirely disagree with. Um, so, as w also, he was very emotionally attached to this situation, and you could tell that he had an agenda coming in, and I'll get into why that is and uh, as we go. So, he's a, a martial arts professional. He uh, was a witness to the situation. He was there yelling at the police. He was saying, oh, mm, he got more and more aggressive as, as time went on. So one of the things that threw me off, that bothered me, was he said that he had 20 professional fights when, when they put him up there because they're just kind of laying stuff out. And he was elaborating on everything, kind of like pumping himself up to make him greater than he is. I just, it, it 
felt like he wanted people to see how knowledgeable he was about stuff, and he was putting in a lot of extra information that wasn't being asked for, and it kind of bothered me a little bit. So when he said he had 20 professional fights, I looked it up, and I found that he had 11 professional fights, uh, and it was a 6-5 and five record, or a 5-6 and six record, I believe. Sorry, it's, it's one or the other. Apologies. Um, and then he also uh, said he started wrestling in 7th grade, and he talked about the keys to wrestling, which I th- thought were also kind of weird, not the typical responses that I would hear from somebody that has wrestled for a long time. But I think based on what he has said, he's got about eight years of wrestling experience, which, okay, uh, that's fair. I just, I, I, just, I just found his knowledge in that area a little bit suspect. And he went on to talk about what he had done that day. And he was saying that he had gone fishing and he tells this fishing story and I'm finding it a little bit weird, but he goes into after they, he had to look on YouTube to find out how to properly clean the fish and and whatnot. But he talks about how he put this fish in the bag and was watching it suffocate and slowly the life leaving its body and how its eyes were rolling back in its head. And one, I don't think fish eyes roll back in their head as they're dying, but he, he was just using very weird language to describe how this fish was dying. And it seemed oddly related to this trial that the fish was having the life taken from him because he could not breathe. And it seemed very rehearsed. So it kind of, it, it was weird. And then it became more evident like why he did this because a while later, while they're talking, he then starts referring to Floyd as being similar or treated as that fish was. So like comparing Floyd to a fish trying to say that the police tr- treated Floyd the same way that he had treated the fish. And he drew the similar comparison saying how he was like the fish in the bag with his life being taken from him. It, it was just very rehearsed, and it was, it was weird. Uh, also, one of the reasons I'm saying that he, is very, he, he seemed pretty biased is they asked him a question about Officer Tao. That was the guy standing between Chauvin and the individuals on the curb. And... He's, he was asking, what response did Officer Tao give you? And he said, he gave the response, he did what an American does and blames it on drugs. And then they had to strike that from the record and they didn't want it said. But this is a clear bias that he, he's saying, he, he's just, he's picking aside and he's sticking to that side based on his opinion and his perceptions coming into the situation um, rather than just saying strictly what he observed. And so that leads me to believe that he clearly has a bias in, in this situation, and it makes it hard to trust what he's saying. He then goes on to talk about the difference between blood chokes and air chokes. In one point, he goes in with the prosecution telling them all the details of how a blood choke works. But then when the defense tries to ask him about an air choke, he says, I'm not a professional, so I don't want to talk about it. Very, okay, It's just inconsistent to me, so I, I didn't like it. He also goes on to explain how the knee in the neck is a type of choke. I would have loved the defense to ask him what move it was because I've done martial arts a lot of my life, wrestling most of it. I've had knees on my neck, entire body weights on my neck. Um, from people my size and much bigger than me. I've never heard a move called anything like a knee-on-neck submission or where someone can go unconscious just from a knee on their neck. 
and that's with full body weight. And if you watch the videos, Chauvin and the other police officers clearly didn't have their full body weight, but at times, yeah, it did look like there was a bit more body weight than needed to be. Um, but he goes on to explain how this is a blood choke, and he can tell by the specific angle at which that Chauvin is putting it on there that he's cutting off this artery, which is restricting the flow of blood to Floyd's head and therefore causes him to go unconscious. Um, there's a lot of problems with this. One, he was on him for a long time. So what they're saying, he's on him for nine minutes, give or take some time. During part of the, for, during this time where he's conscious, he was communicating with people. He's still yelling. He's screaming out stuff. Um, if you get a blood choke put on you, you know you're going to go unconscious very quickly, a matter of seconds, which he even later confirms. And if you're being air choked, you're not going to be able to yell or scream. So it, it didn't really align with logic, in, in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> but he was sticking to the fact that that's what Chauvin was doing, and he was, or Chauvin was doing, and that's what he was purposely doing. And then later on, well, I get into a little bit more of the paramedics showing up, but the thing that didn't align with this is the paramedic shows up and... Uh, Donald William confirms that Chauvin didn't move even when paramedics came up, but the paramedics were still able to come and check his pulse while the knee was in that same location. And I, I've spoken with people that are uh, EMT, uh, uh, not paramedics, but the EMTs, and they say generally if, you're, if there's a restriction on one side, you'd need to check on the other side. And they didn't. They checked on the same side. So... I, I, it just seems like there's too many holes in what he was saying. And later on, when the defense was asking him kind of about his previous martial arts record, the other thing that stood out, which was a bit strange to me, they were saying, well, we found that you were a five and six record. Yeah, they told him it was a five and six record. Or They, they asked him how many fights he had, and he said, I, I don't remember. But the day before... Previously, I don't. There was a split because he did one on one day, one on the other. There was a split. I think this was the second day that he was on the stand. He said that he couldn't remember how many fights at this point. And then they said, "Wasn't it five and six? And then he corrected them, said, "No, it was six and six. So that's the thing that doesn't. It just he doesn't strike me as an honest person, and he kind of had an agenda. One day he said he had twenty professional fights. The next day, he said he can't remember how many professional fights. Then they tell him how many professional fights he had and that it was on the internet for anyone to see, and he corrected it and said, no, that's wrong. It's six and six. So these are just kind of inconsistencies that stuck out to me that if I was you know, having a one-on-one -on -one discussion with someone and they were telling me this, I, just, I, I would no longer believe what they were telling me. All right, so the next thing that I want to get into is Floyd's girlfriend. This was on day four. And she gave a lot of information that I thought was really critical. And this is still, uh, you know, the, prior to me changing my mind on some of this stuff. And she, so she was actually, the information she gave was a more confirmation to me that, um, not that Shaman hadn't done anything wrong, but that the drugs were entirely responsible the death. Some of the things that she told us that were important, that they both suffered from opioid addiction and real big thing was that he was hospitalized back in March 
with stomach pain. He went to the ER. At the time, they didn't know what it was, but they found out later this was due to an overdose. And this was from heroin and opioids. And he was in the hospital for five days. And at that time, he had he was complaining about stomach pain, the same stomach pain that he was complaining about the day of his death. And he had foam coming from his mouth, same type of foam that was coming from his mouth um, on the day that he, that he died. And she described it in the same way that it was. It was this white foam in the corners of his mouth, around his lips, and that was exactly what the police officers were talking about on the day as well. And with that, she had talked about these pills that they bought, and they got them from Maurice Hall, and that was the passenger in Floyd's vehicle that day, and she did not know he was with him on that day, though. So they got these strange pills from him because they couldn't get them from a more safe place, basically, is what she was saying. And these pills were oddly shaped, and they weren't they weren't like the typical pills that they would normally get because they would normally try to get pills that were under someone else's prescription so they could know what they were. But in emergencies where they couldn't get that, they were willing to purchase outside of that safety net, I suppose. And she took these pills, uh, and this was previously, and uh, they were, what was it? She said... She had purchased them from the same source, the Maurice Hall, when they were desperate. And she had told the FBI that when she took these pills, that she felt like she was going to die. And they had purchased pills from the same person a week before Floyd's death. So she took these pills, and Floyd also took these pills. It made them feel like they were going to die. But then they purchased from the same source again later, and then on the same day of Floyd's death, where he's having all these strange reactions to these to in front of the police and on camera, he was with that same person under the influence of fentanyl and meth and other things. So um, it, it, it doesn't look great for him, him in general and for the cause of death because he could have very well been having another o- overdose that the police just didn't know about because they repeatedly asked him on camera, are you on anything? Are you on anything? And of course he says no, which I'm sure they encounter uh, all the time with people that do not want to admit to being on anything. And so that's just another issue to consider. All right, so next I want to get into uh, Seth Bravender. He was one of the paramedics on the scene, and uh, they originally got a Code 2 for a mouth injury, and they're heading to the scene at Code 2. Basically, no lights, no sirens. It's not an actual emergency. They just need to get there. Okay, so uh, that was the call that they got. So they head there. Then, what was it? Uh, I believe... uh, a minute and 30 seconds later, roughly, they said, it was upgraded to a code three, which is lights and sirens. So it's now, an, it's an emergency. You need to get there quickly. And they arrived six minutes later. To me, this was, this was the first, uh, like, we've got a problem here, okay? If the police were aware enough to upgrade the call, they knew that there was something more serious going on. And from that point forward, there's six minutes of lapsed time where they don't adjust their behavior to fit that 
new information that they have. So I'm going to get into that a little bit later. So they arrive six minutes later. They decide to load because of kind of the hostile area. They decide to load him into the vehicle, into the ambulance, and take him a couple blocks away. And then they they go. They work on getting hit, uh, heart compression, an IV, and air to him before they can transport him to the hospital. And um, in that time, so so they, there's six minutes of time where it takes to get there. Then there's a few minutes of time while they're loading him to the ambulance and then taking him to that other location. This is all still time where he's getting no medical attention. Okay, so now I want to get Derek Smith. Derek Smith, Derek Smith was another one of the paramedics that came on scene about six minutes after the call. And he was the one that actually checked the pulse. And this is one of the things that I think is important. If we're going back and based on what was it William Don, uh, Donald Williams said, he was saying that he knew for a fact, or from his opinion, he knew that Chauvin drove the knee into the neck and was blocking that artery perfect, purposely to cut off the blood and then continued to stay there. So then he's knowingly killing him. He called it a kill choke. If that's true, you wouldn't be able to check the pulse at this point. Okay, so... On the video, you can actually see Derek Smith come up without Derek Chauvin moving the exact same place, and Donald Williams confirmed that Chauvin did not move. He checks the pulse. When he checks the pulse, he confirms there is no pulse. Now, you would suspect that if there was something in the way, you would have to check the other side. Okay, And I've confirmed that with some with other super secret EMT people. Then then after after they they check check the pulse, then they're able to determine determine there is no pulse. They get out the equipment so that they can, the the bed, so they can put him in the truck and they can go. So he asked the police officers to get off. They help him put him onto the bed and they go. But in all this time, still no assistance for him. Okay, next, next in one of the, Real turning points for me. Okay, this was the David Plyoger. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and I can't remember. So he's later the senior officer on scene. And he, he said a lot of stuff that is really damning, in, in my opinion. So one of the things is that the police, the policy is to call an ambulance and provide aid. Let me put this up here. So if you are just listening, I'm basically just putting up the requirement for medical assistance. So it says, as soon as reasonable, is as reasonably practical, determine if anyone was injured and render medical aid consistent with training and request emergency medical service, EMS, if necessary. To me, this is a really big deal because in their own policy, and this is the thing that I was sticking on, if he's following police protocol, you cannot condemn him. But now I see the police protocol, and it's, okay, even 
if he was a danger to you. He's now handcuffed. He's on the ground. And you're waiting for a significant amount of time. You know, I suppose time is relative, but from a a later, or I'm sorry, an earlier testimony by uh, Genevieve Hansen, uh, which I wasn't able to confirm this, but she was saying that a five-minute delay is unheard of in her opinion. I don't know how accurate that is. I've heard of waiting for police and uh, ambulance and fire for a lot longer than five minutes before. So I don't. I, I just I don't know how accurate that is. I guess, but her reason for saying that was the fact that there was a fire station a couple blocks away, and she felt like they should have been able to respond much quicker to get some sort of medical attention to this to George Floyd. So while they're waiting all this time, and maybe they thought they're going to get there sooner, and that's why they're waiting, I, I don't know, but while they're waiting, they're just refusing to give any medical attention. And the defense points out that it says give aid when reasonably practical, and that fluid situations require fluid actions. Uh, that, that was my words, but that's basically what they're saying, and that because of the crowd being a threat, they have to mitigate the threat beforehand. But a timeline matters here, and the crowd wasn't a threat until the officers didn't provide aid. If the officers had provided aid, the crowd wouldn't have been a threat. So you can't say the crowd was a threat and so they didn't provide aid because they wouldn't have been a threat if you had originally provided aid, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's just a timeline. We don't have a time machine, so we can't just bounce around which one happened first. One happened, then the other happened. Okay, and because of A, then B. So I, I really didn't think this was a very good argument. Uh, so and then one argument that did make sense is that the officers, they have to be careful because, you know, and this is something they talked to the MMA, the Donald Williams about as well, is somebody goes unconscious. I see this all the time on TV as well. When someone goes unconscious, they get choked out or they get knocked out. They wake up and they're trying to fight again. They don't realize that they were just unconscious. They don't realize that there was an issue. They just go straight into fighting. So I understand the idea that the police cannot just completely let up and expect this guy is just going to wake up and be fine when he was just fighting a moment ago when he was awake. But there's a difference between being aware, keeping your hand on him, keeping him stable in a position, and um, letting him completely free and just sitting there with your knee on him, even when he goes unconscious. And whether or not the knee had any effect on the whatsoever, it, it, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit questionable. I, th- I would say more than a bit questionable, and I'll, I'll get into a little bit more of that as well. But I do want to show you real quick a video, and I think this video really demonstrates the difference between what did happen and what could have happened. Oh, oh, please be quiet. Oh, we got him on already. Ah! Oh, you're killing me. I bet I couldn't get it hooked. Ah! You want me to hook it? Yeah. That would be good. Oh, kill me. This is a situation that the police are dealing with all the time. So, as you can see, this guy here, he's yelling out, don't kill me. Similar things that what Floyd was doing, just not in a correct mental state. You're yelling things out. They're scared for their lives. They're paranoid. 
I'm gonna keep going. Stop it! Okay, so up to this point, you saw more than once the knee is on the head slash neck with, in my opinion, significantly more weight than what was on Floyd's weight. When you look at, you know, one of the things that Donald Williams was talking about is how he could see the shift in weight. Well, I'm also very familiar with shift in weight, and I did not see Chauvin having a significant amount of weight on Floyd. There were times when he was adjusting his body where you could say, yes, he does, but you can also see on based on other angles of footage that on the back side he has his other leg pinning down the uh, the, the near side arm. Okay, so he's handcuffed back like this. He's pinning down this near side on the back of the arm, and a significant amount of his weight is there. And to me, it looked like he had more weight in that position. And something that kind of aligns with that is that. When Chauvin goes to get up, he doesn't move, he doesn't adjust, he doesn't shift his weight, but he immediately takes his leg from the neck and puts it into the standing position and then stands up. If he had all of his weight on that leg the way that Donald was, Donald Williams was trying to say, he would have to shift his weight to his back leg so that he can stand up. I mean, if you put all your weight on your front knee and you just sit on your knee, try to stand up, you're not going to be able to do it. And he did not have to shift. So I, I think that's something that is worth recognizing. So he, here's one of the big differences. Okay, He goes unconscious. I'm going to go back just a tiny bit. He goes unconscious. And here's what you see. And here's one of my big problems. I think we've reached the state of unconsciousness here. He immediately notices when he's reached the state of unconsciousness. And he says, I think we've met, met the state of unconsciousness. And... Watch the actions from this point. Gentlemen. Very fucking close. Yeah, I think we've reached the state of unconsciousness, so let's uh, right. check him. We gotta get him back up on yeah. his butt. Check him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very obvious. Check him. Yeah. Yeah. Check him. They know they need to do something now. You can't just let him lay there while he's unconscious. Right now, we have officially reached the state of unconsciousness here. Get the Come bag. On, get the bag. Come on. I'm Stay telling up. you right now. You get go. a bag. 93 response, start the medics here. Okay, boom. Immediately, they're calling the medics here. They've started medical attention before they call the medics, and now they're going to continue. Hey, hey, look at me. Get your gun. Undo the hobble if you have to. I'm trying to, but I can't get it. Back going again. So you just heard them telling them, check the pulse. Make sure he's breathing. This is something the bystanders were yelling. Check his pulse. Check his pulse. Is he breathing? Check his pulse. 
repeatedly over and over. But they made the phone call and waited for six minutes for medical services to arrive, and then several more minutes while they were loading him up, taking him to a different location before he got treatment. And you just mentioned they said take the hobble off the hobble. This is uh, one of the maximal restraint techniques. So for uh, once you get them handcuffed, you also have the legs. So you bring the legs up and you put a restraint from the handcuffs to the legs, and you keep them in this position. You can see on the George Floyd uh, video, they go. It looks like they they go to about to put him into that that position, but for whatever reason, they said not to do it. So I. This was another one of the arguments. Because they didn't put him in that hobble, which protects himself and the other people around, they had to stay on him because normally you would put him in the hobble. But all that argument goes out the window once he's unconscious because you hear what just happened. He went unconscious. I'll go back a little bit. Back going again. He's got a pulse. Okay. Do the hobble if you have to. Okay, check for a pulse, make sure he's breathing, and then undo the hobble if you have to. Sure. Undo the hobble if you have to. So they get him in this position. Once he's unconscious and unresponsive, they have to say, okay, he might be dangerous. He might wake up and he might go crazy. But at this point, it's a risk they have to take because you cannot just leave him in this situation and not give him some sort of medical assistance. Pulse. Okay. All right. He's probably going to stay unconscious, so let's go ahead and undo the hobble if we have the hobble again. Okay, so he's probably going to stay unconscious, so let's go ahead and undo the hobble. I, I think this is a, a, a give-and-take situation. You know, he's still handcuffed, and we... we either undo it and give him proper medical assistance or we leave it on and... Maybe they can give him proper medical assistance, but it sounds like they can't. So in, George, in Floyd's situation, they did not have him in the hobble. They just had three officers holding him down. So it would have been even easier for them to give him some sort of medical attention. And one of the officers in the video even suggested, hey, should we turn him over? And uh, the response was not to do it, just to leave him there. Let's keep going. I need a light. Here it looks like they're undoing the hobble. Here it is. Get him up on him. Sit him up. Get him up. All the way. Okay, so one of the things you, you heard that they need to get him up, they need to move him. One of the issues with the hobble and one of the the uh, policies is after, once you use it, you need to put them on their side. So let me pull up this. Is a okay, maximal restraint technique. So this is the hobble. This is techniques like putting the knee on the neck, which I'm going to get into a little bit later of whether or not they're actually taught to do that. So as soon as reasonably possible, 
any person restrained using the MRT who is in the prone position shall be placed in the following positions based on the type of restraint used. A, if the hobble restraint device is used, the person shall be placed in the side recovery position. The argument here is he wasn't in the hobble, and I get that, but he was held in the hobble position. So instead of the the thing tying the arms and legs together, it was another officer who was doing it. So they have three officers there holding him in that position instead. Let's continue on in the video. Checking his pulse again. So all of these things that the officers are doing are things that the other officers could have been doing. And I struggle to understand why they didn't try. When you go through the order of different levels of ability, so you have officers, they have a very low level of medical training, but they do have basics. Then you have EMT, then you have paramedic, and on up, up the chain. I fail to understand how if these officers have this level of training, why those officers didn't. I think they did. And for whatever reason, someone there made the decision to sit and wait in a hold position, which would make sense, which they talked about a hold position, would make sense if he's continuing to fight. But he wasn't. He's unconscious. Okay, so now they move to They take the cuffs off, want to put them on his back so that they can work on it. So now all of these officers, they're accepting risk by completely letting him free. Now, what, something I didn't mention, before this video, the guy was up running around. He was yelling about uh, he was yelling about something, but he, he was very out, out of his mind. Okay, He's obviously on some sort of substance or having some sort of mental breakdown. But I, don't, I don't necessarily know. But he's fine. He's on the side of the road. He's kind of spinning around, and then suddenly he darts out into traffic, into the road, and the officer has to chase after him. That, I mean, that's kind of another concern when you let an individual have their own control, you don't know that they're not going to jump out into traffic. So you let off of George Floyd. If you're not paying close attention or you're not restricting him in some way and he gets out in traffic and gets hit, then the police are then liable for not controlling the suspect in their care. But obviously, there's a big difference between controlling a suspect in one way, uh, where you're just holding them there, and another way where there's in need of medical attention, but you don't provide it to them. So here, now they're accepting the risk. They take off the handcuffs, they, the hobbles off. If he wakes up and he goes crazy, they're going to have to fight him back down again. And it took several police officers the first time. They're going to have to do it again. Get it over in his mouth. Get it on his mouth. 
My understanding about this is this is not how they're trained to do it anymore, but I think we get the point. They've been trained in some level of medical assistance for a long time. And one of the uh, later people, one of the people later uh, in the trial go in to describe this a little bit. But either way, they're they're doing what they were trained to do at this time. Check for signs of life. Pulse? Yeah, we got it. We got it. We got it. We got a pulse. No, wait. Stop this. Stop the compression. Okay, so they got a pulse. Take, stop this for a second. Check, check, check his airway. Listen. Put your head down there and listen. There you go. Get down there. So one of the things there's obviously not a lot of experience because once they got a pulse, the, one of the officers goes to do compression again. The other ones tell him, no, 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 no. We're, You've got a pulse. We don't need to do the compression. So then they are doing the uh, breathing and then checking to clear the airway. So there's obviously a gap in knowledge here. Not breathing. All right, keep the bag. Keep the bag. Keep they bag. determine he's not breathing, so keep doing the bag. Take your time. A little slower. <laughs> Tilt his head more. All right, so for, for me, when I watch that video, it's such a big difference from what I saw in the videos with George Floyd, and I, I don't know why what, what that is. Now, you're going to have groups of people saying, oh, it's because he's black. Oh, I don't know the race of this individual. He looks, kind, looks like, uh, let me, he looks like a white guy. Um, but again, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think he is a white guy, but this is just an example. Okay. I just went and got this example quickly. You can get numerous examples where you see the same techniques used. It's not that hard to find for all races. I'm I'm just not willing to jump on board and say race because that is the catch all. Every single issue in society now seems to be. From one particular angle, uh, it's race, and that is the answer to all the problems. I think we all usually know problems are not as simple as all being able to be narrowed down to one issue. So uh, I see absolutely zero evidence that points to any sort of racial motivation. That's just my personal opinion. I'll continue to watch, and if something sticks out, I'm happy to change my opinion as I, I... I've done throughout this first week of trial. All right, so next, uh, day five. And, and here, here's a, a, it was a big day for sure for, for prosecution, in my opinion. You know, if I was on the jury, I would have started with one belief, and by the end of week one, I would have felt completely the opposite. And, and I went into a little bit of why that is and... I'll finish it up here. Okay, so 
first, the policy they must follow. Uh, I went into this a little bit. This is Richard Zimmerman. Let me get. Let me give you uh, Richard Zimmerman. Okay, this is Richard Zimmerman. Again, if you're just listening, apologies. Just takes a moment. I got to get this up on the screen. This is Richard Zimmerman. He's been a police officer since '81, and he's got instruction on use of force once a year. That sounds insane to me, first of all, just as far as police protocol and what they're expected to do. How about fund the police so that we can have training more than once a year? If, if I went and wrestled once a year or I did any martial art, any combative, anything once a year, I wonder how good I'm going to be. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be absolutely horrible. So that's insane to me. And, uh, okay, so... He talks about the policy that they are that the police are supposed to follow. When they arrive at a scene, they have the lowest level. Then the next level is verbal. So when they're doing some speaking, vocals. The next level, soft technique, is to escort the person. Next is the hard technique, using mace or handcuffs on a suspect. Sorry, hiccup. The top level is using deadly force. Okay, so, and the levels have to change depending on what is happening at the time, which I said earlier. They take in information and they make an adjustment. So, one of the questions asked, in all your years, have you ever been trained to kneel on the neck of a handcuffed individual? And his answer was no. This is weird to me. Because I've repeatedly seen this done, and I've spoken to police officers. I've recently spoken to police officers, and they still say, control the head. And if you're trying to get their arms and subdue them, you need your hands. So you you would use your shin or knee area to control their head, keep that on the ground, while then working the arms. And yes, sometimes it takes multiple officers to do this, especially when somebody's on drugs uh, and they're not feeling what an average person would feel. So that, that was a little bit weird to me because I've heard the opposite said. And he also said that when you put the knee on the neck, this is a top-level force, which before he said using... Uh, well, okay, he he said using top-level force is using deadly force. But then he, he also said that top-level force is putting the knee on the neck because it can be deadly. I found this a little bit weird because anything can be deadly. When you do a, uh, a takedown on an opponent, if they land wrong on their back or their neck, they technically they can die. So I wouldn't say that holding a person down by their neck or head would be a top-level force in the same way that shooting them is. It just doesn't align. And I was very surprised that an officer with this much experience would make that sort of claim. And then there's something a little bit later that connects to that that I'll, that I'll talk about. Um, but here, okay, here, here's the biggest thing for me. And it seems so obvious once it's said, but it, for whatever reason, my head just, I, I just wasn't connecting the dots in this way. 
But he said that once the individual is handcuffed, or they asked him, once the individual is handcuffed, what is the responsibility of the officer? And he says their life is in your hands. You have full responsibility for their life. I th- I think this is this is it. This is the the whole thing. From the moment that they put those handcuffs on, first of all, they're they're police officers. And Chauvin's been an officer for what, nineteen years, something like this. He's he should be very experienced with the behaviors of individuals on drugs. It doesn't matter what Floyd did before he was handcuffed. The fact is he's handcuffed and he now no longer has the ability to control his own life. And I, I don't want to put too I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but I don't want to not put enough. It, it's very serious. I think. So if I am handcuffed, let's say you handcuff me, you, you are 100% responsible for my well-being in this, at this point. And it doesn't really matter what I was doing before to an extent. I know, I know there's going to be exceptions to that rule. I'm sure that I'll hear about it. But you've got an individual and he goes unconscious not only does your policy tell you that you need to provide him medical assistance, but you've got him handcuffed, which also means that his life is fully in your hands. And when you choose to take no action, I can say that I think, let's say for a moment, Chauvin had his hand gently on Floyd's back, just keeping him in place. And the other officers were standing there. Or maybe they just each had a hand on him to make sure in case he wakes up and and goes crazy, they're ready to jump on him just in case. Let's say all this exact same stuff happened. They've got the hand on him. And he goes unconscious. Then what? If they just sit there nicely with their hand on him, are they less liable for his death? I would say no. I don't think the knee here matters, because I think the knee is insignificant. The whole problem with this case is that once he goes unconscious, there's zero action taken to adjust for the new circumstances. And as challenging as it can be, and I think it's unfair, some of the standards that we hold police to, you have to adjust based on the information coming in. And if their level of restraint is the exact same while he's conscious as it is while he's unconscious, that is not doing their job. And so as hard as it is for me to say, because I, I always, I, my natural instinct is to go on the side of the police because I think they have one of the hardest jobs they can have, or that anyone can have. I can't get around their own responsibility to take care of an individual in handcuffs. And I saw zero difference in their behavior from when he's handcuffed and unconscious to when he's handcuffed and squirming around on the ground to where he's having to continuously adjust and change his position to keep it holding him down. To me, that's a serious problem. And, and at, the, at the very minimum... Uh, at the minimum, it shows negligence. 
and I think this goes into the bit of the charges that I have here, the count one, second degree intentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter, which at the very end of this, I'll get into where I think those charges end up end up lying. Um, so one of the other things that Richard uh, Zimmerman pointed out is that once you have the handcuffs on, the police risk drops dramatically. So let's say they're fighting. And the the police, at this point, I, I would say if they're fighting and a police is in danger, he has the right to pull his gun at any point. Because there's nothing, anything that could potentially prevent him from getting home to his family, he needs to do what he needs to do. If he was to get punched by a suspect, if he thinks, I can't win this one-on-one fight or he's in, in danger in any way, if he gets punched wrong and he gets knocked unconscious, he has no control over his life, and the suspect can kill him, can take his gun, can take his gun and hurt others, can do anything. So I fully say, full force, whatever you need to do, this person shouldn't be resisting. But that entirely changes once they're handcuffed. And what Richard, uh, sorry, is it Richard? Yeah, Richard Zimmerman points out is that the risk of the police officer or the risk of the in- police injury once the individual is cuffed is much lower, therefore lower need for high-level force. So the maximum amount of force that an individual can throw towards the police is very different from when they're handcuffed and when they're not handcuffed. And so if the police keep the same level of force against the suspect when they're handcuffed and not handcuffed, it doesn't make any sense you have to adjust based on the information you're getting. And I know I've said that several times, but I'm going to keep reiterating that because it's, it, it's completely changed my perspective on this entire case. Uh, so as the combatant changes their behavior, the officer must adjust. That's another point by Zimmerman. So, for example, Floyd goes unconscious. In the video that I just showed you, he goes unconscious. You could literally, you, you could hear the police officers grunting and yelling at this guy on the video that I just played a moment ago to get him to hold still. And the moment he goes unconscious, the demeanor changes. There is no longer aggression. There's no longer anger. There's nothing. The person in charge there, and, and maybe it's, they just have a, a really strong leader there with them, and these guys didn't, and they didn't call for backup the way that they should have. I, I don't know. But immediately, he says, we've reached the state of unconsciousness, and everybody changes. They, they get the pressure off of him. There's no longer a knee on his neck. There's no longer a knee on his back. There's no longer body pressure on him whatsoever. They roll him over. They start trying to wake him up. And they, the, the voice, actually, it changes. They're no longer angry at this man. They're concerned for this man. And it's that lack of humanity that we see in all of the footage during the Floyd incident. incident. So as, uh, as Zimmerman goes on, he talks about the, the need of them to get them in the position as soon as possible to, because it restricts their breathing. So when you have them in what, what I read earlier on the restrictions, you've got them in the, uh, that position with their arms behind their back and their legs up. It, it makes it very difficult for them to breathe. So in, when he's saying in general, when you have a person in this position, you need to get them off of this position, ideally onto their side 
uh, as quickly as possible because it makes their <clears throat> their breathing even more difficult when they're handcuffed. And he said he's had training on the dangers of this since 1985 and that Chauvin should therefore know the same things that he knows. And that they are trained, as I just, you just saw in the video, they are trained on basic medical intervention. And something I already talked about here earlier, he just confirmed that yes, the police are obligated to provide medical intervention even if they called for medical help. And as I said earlier, not only did they call for medical help, but they upgraded it to level three, which means they knew it was more serious. They knew it was more serious, but they didn't change their behavior. That's a problem. So they knew something was wrong. And there's no change in their force until after the ambulance arrived. The ambulance arrives. They still don't change. They stay there. They check the pulse. They say there are no pulse. And they don't move until the paramedics ask them to get out of the way so that they can get him on the bed. And then the police do help him to get onto the bed. And something that, you know, towards the end Zimmerman said, uh, there's... It was totally unnecessary use of force, the knee on the neck for that amount of time. No reason that officers felt they are in danger, which is how they would have had to feel to use that use to to use that type of force. Now that's a little bit weird to me because earlier he was saying he's never been trained to use that type of force, and now he's saying that if your life is in threat, you can use that type of force. So to me, those two things were a bit conflicting, but I. As far as the second statement that he made, I I understand that argument that they didn't feel like their lives were in danger, and the defense is arguing, well, they might have felt their lives were in danger because of the crowd gathering around that was angry and yelling things at them, and in some cases threatening them. But again, that's the timeline. One happened before the other. The crowd was angry because of this. If if suddenly Chauvin got off of him, and they started doing resuscitation techniques, whatever their training is, doing the best they could, I guarantee that crowd wouldn't have been hostile anymore. They were hostile because there was a lack of action that they were repeatedly calling for. And wh- whether they're right yelling that stuff, or that's kind of a whole other subject, and I understand the, the issues with that that have been brought in the trial as well, but I'm not going to get into that. And Zimmerman said, once he's on the ground, it should have stopped. Similar to in the, the video, they got him under control, and then you see, you see that stuff stop. One of the things that I found a bit weird was Zimmerman in this, it, it took a little bit of his credibility away because he said, he was asked, is it, is it as common for police to use strikes as it is body weight techniques? And he said, yes that it is as common for police to use strikes as bodyweight techniques. Now, I'm not a police officer. I've watched cops. I've seen police deal with situations. I've watched the internet. I've seen news. And every time there's a physical altercation, I don't really see police, like, winding up with the fists ready, throwing punches, throwing kicks, beating them with their baton. I see them grabbing onto them and trying to throw them to the ground. 
so I found this very weird that Zimmerman stuck to this point, and they asked him more than once, and uh, he, he just kept saying that strikes were just as common as body weight. And that was a little bit weird to me. If I was the defense in this position, I would have asked him, you know, over your how many years since the 85, since over all of your years in with the police force, how many times have you punched a suspect? Like how many how many times were you striking with them? Versus how many times did you try to tackle a suspect and throw him on the ground or control him with your body weight? I, I think the answer is very obvious there, but he was avoiding answering this and, and acting like it was. Uh, I, I I don't know I don't know it was weird, you know. And another and another thing that if the officers really did feel like their lives were in danger and they couldn't give medical assistance because they had to deal with the crowd, they would have called for more backup, and they didn't. So that argument, I think, completely goes away. As well as, which goes into holding for EMS. So this is where they, they'll keep the suspect under control for the emergency services and in order to make sure that it's safe for other people to come in. I, I get that. But he's unconscious, and that goes out the window. You have to give medical assistance. So, I mean, basically this is what I've gathered over the last week. Chauvin and the other officers used completely necessary force all the way up to halfway through the ordeal. The knee on the neck, I've found numerous situations where police use the knee on the neck. I've talked to other law enforcement people. They confirmed, yes, this is a strategy. Yes, you control the head. I've looked at the the policy. Everything seemed above board. Everything was good. Where everything changes is when he goes unconscious and no action is taken to change the police behavior. That is a that's that's the whole thing to me. And I think that points to a big amount of negligence at the minimum. So, uh, real quickly, I want to just go into these these charges. So, count one, second degree unintentional murder. Count two, third degree murder. And, and uh, count three, second degree manslaughter. First, let's look at the second degree, third degree murder. Okay, so third degree murder. Let's get it up here. Okay, third degree murder. Oop, 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 sorry. Whoever, so uh, this is in, uh, so in every state it changes a little bit. So this is in the state where, in Minnesota where this occurred. It's a bit weird. There we go. Whoever, without intent to affect the death of any person, causes the death of another person, perpetuating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life, is guilty of murder in the third degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years. 
uh, here's my problem with this one. Depraved mind. Okay, it says, death by another perpetual... Sorry, my eyes are bad. Perpetuating an act eminently dangerous. This is an act that is used all the time, so I don't think this act of putting the knee on the neck is eminently dangerous, but it may become eminently dangerous when you have an unconscious individual. So that's something that needs to be debated. I, I think it, it maybe could become dangerous, but I, I, I don't think so. The dangerous act is not taking action, so the lack of action is the dangerous act, in my opinion. And with a depraved mind, I, I don't know how they're going to prove that he has a de- depraved mind. And on an earlier podcast when I talked about leading up to this trial, I kind of broke it down, what is a depraved mind? I'm not going to get into that here. So, I, I mean, there is a part of this where a, a conviction could happen, but it doesn't seem super likely. Okay, so next we've got the uh, second degree, three degree, second degree manslaughter. So second degree unintentional murder. All right, so second degree unintentional murder. Make this a little bit bigger for us. Okay, subsection two, unintentional murders. Whoever does either the following is guilty of unintentional murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 40 years. One, causes of death of a human being without intent to affect the death of any person. Okay, so you don't mean to kill them, but you cause their death. While committing or attempting to commit a felony offense. This is the problem while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, uh, force of violence by driving, blah, 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 blah. doesn't matter. Okay, this first part is the only thing that matters. While committing or attempting to commit a felony offense, can they prove that Chauvin was committing a felony offense or that he was intentionally committing a felony offense? I don't think they can. I just don't know how they're going to go about proving that, so that's something I'm going to be interested to try to continue to listen to. But I think that's a, a problem with the unintentional murder. And then finally, we have the uh, manslaughter in the second degree. <clears throat> so manslaughter in the second degree. A person who causes the death of another by any of the following means is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 10 years or to payment of a fine of not more than 20000 or both. One. And one, one's the only one I have on here because it's the only one that applies. If you don't believe me, you can go look it up pretty easily. The other things are completely disconnected from, from this situation, so it's not worth reading through them. By the, uh, by the person's culpable negligence, what I was talking about earlier is negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk, refusing to provide medical training, it's an unreasonable risk in my opinion, and consciously takes chances of death or great bodily harm to another. The only problem with this is the consciously. I would say that Chauvin, after 20 years, should know that when an individual goes unconscious, you need to give them medical assistance or change something. You don't just sit there with on top of them. 
even though I don't think he had his weight necessarily on him, but I, what I even explained earlier, even if he just had his hand on him, you can't just sit there and let someone die while they're in your custody. You know, if somebody's eating a piece of chicken and they're perfectly fine and they're handcuffed in the back of the police car, for some reason they had a piece of chicken left in their mouth. Just work with me here, okay? And they're choking on the chicken and the police officer just sits there and watches them choke until they die. That's a, that's a problem. That's negligence. I guess in that situation, you know for sure that they're choking and dying. So in this situation, they maybe just think he's going unconscious, so it's a little bit different. But I think the point stands. So, by the person's culpable negligence, negligence not providing attention, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk, unreasonable risk to his life by not getting the medical attention, and consciously takes a chance of death. You know, if somebody passes out, you have to be open to the idea that maybe there's a chance of death, right? Or great bodily harm. To another, I think the highest probability um, of getting a conviction is this manslaughter charge, and maybe the unintentional murder. But I, I, I don't know. I'm interested to see, but I don't know. But the, here's here's the bigger concern: it doesn't matter what he's convicted of. It really doesn't, because nobody's going to accept it. Whether he's convicted of the strongest charge and gets a maximum sentence, it won't be enough. And for certainly, if he if he's to get a fine for not more than twenty thousand or both conviction and a fine, there's going to be crazy rights either way. No matter what happens to him, it's not going to be enough. The narrative is going to be run. It's not like magically justice will be served and America is not racist anymore to the people that believe it's racist. Doesn't matter. He gets convicted today, the same exact situation can happen in a year from now, and they're going to say this once again. Al Sharpton will run up and say, oh, this is a trial against America to see if they have, if they're still racist. You know, it, it, it'll never matter. So I, that's kind of the problem that I have with this. It doesn't matter what the conviction is. The, it, in, in my mind, the decision's already made up. There's going to be, there's conviction or not, there's going to be crazy riots and destruction Probably more deaths because of it. All right. Well, I think I've gone through as much of this as I can. I tried to make it quick. I know it wasn't as quick as I wanted it to be. But if you have any complaints about what I'm saying or you want to dispute or maybe I'm lacking knowledge in some area or I'm missing something, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk about it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of notes that I have here that I didn't talk about, that I'm I'm just trying to make this quick. I didn't want to make you sit through 25 hours of material like I did. So um, I did my best to get through this quickly. So let me know what you think or if you want to discuss it. Anyway, if you've made it this far, I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, I hope you have a good time.